Welcome to the first episode of Ask the Goddamn DM. My name is Patrick Tracy, and I am the Goddamn DM. Joining me on this adventure is my co-host, Tony Half-Orc Paisano. Half-Orc? Yeah, you know, I mean, you got a little bit of underbite. Dude, I spent a lot of money on these teeth, man. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 it's working. That's why you're half-orc. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I was full orc, full orc before I went to the dentist. Yeah. So we are uh, trying to provide a podcast to help out players and DMs alike for any tabletop game. And we wanted to go over something that kind of catches everyone's attention when it comes to role-playing games in general. And I think that you can help me out with this. Yay, I can do things. You can do things. Because today we'll be discussing the rule of cool. Ah, yes. Now, off the top of your head, do you know what the rule of cool is? Uh, I do because I uh, play games in which you DM. So I'm fully aware of the rule of cool. Why don't you explain it for us then? Okay, yeah. So the rule of cool essentially is when uh, the dungeon master and the player have an agreement to slightly bend the rules uh, in order to create a a scene that's maybe beyond what the norm is, but gives people more of a narrative flair. The, oh, like I want to jump off the rafters and I want to Indiana Jones whip my, you know, whip out and catch a pillar and like swing and kick this guy in the face Spider-Man style. I threw a lot of references in that. <laughs> that's what's usually happens and with the rule cool. And I snap like Thanos and everyone disappears. Right. <laughs> no, half no, the only half of them. But uh, no, it's exactly that, where it's like, you know, especially with 5th edition, which is our kind of game of choice, there's not really a mechanic set for, I want to Indiana Jones my way across the room using my whip and kick a guy in the face. Right. And so the DM, the dungeon master, and the player kind of have to come up with this, like, well, you know what, I'll let you roll an acrobatics check, or I'll let you roll an athletics check, or you know what, just roll me a d20 kind of agreement to let this thing slide where it's, you know, the DM pretty much coming up with a ruling on the field. Right. And I think that you mentioned uh, 5E. I think that's this is the perfect addition to do that because 5E is kind of like the perfect balance between rules and regulations, if you would, and like the narrative element. It's not overly complicated in, in regards to like the number crunching. Uh, which allows for a lot of more uh, narrative flexibility. So the rule of cool is like the perfect implementation specifically for 5th edition because it it there's a gap there that this fits perfectly. Exactly. And it seems like they almost intentionally wrote it a little bit loose to mm-hmm. allow that. Like 4th right. edition, uh, which is a game that I love that other people hate. And, right. you know, you can send all those messages my way at the goddamn DM <laughs> if you want. Tony had nothing to do with this conversation, but fourth edition was incredibly number heavy and it didn't allow a lot of those freedoms to do that. It tried to with the skill challenge system, which, you know, everyone kind of went like, oh, I don't really know how to use this. And some people did really well with it and some people did really bad with it. Mm-hmm. But fifth edition allows you to do it flawlessly, thankfully. And it leaves a lot up to the DM to make that kind of judgment of the player's requested action. And, you know, a lot of the difficulty with it comes in uh, trying to keep the boundaries on it a little bit. Because if you left everything to a D20 roll, then the players have 5% chance of doing whatever the hell they want. Right. You know, so you kind of got to mitigate, like, the level of crazy that you want in your game. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think the thing about the rule of cool is that the, the bigger the action, the more the consequences. Like, if you want to attempt this 
and you pull it off, something epic is going to happen. But if you fail, that you're going to fail way worse than you would have if you were just trying to perform like this normal action. Exactly. And there has to be kind of an agreement between the the entire table for the mm-hmm. most part of like how how weird do we want to let this get? You know, do you want your player to be like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of bored today. I'm going to uppercut the moon. What do I got to roll for that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you got to, as a DM, kind of make that little rule of like, uh, you physically can't jump that high. Right. <laughs> you cannot jump high enough to leave orbit today. And then, you know, the players also have to kind of have that expectation too and be able to kind of vocalize where it's like, I really don't want to play a game where we're all, you know, Dragon Ball Z characters. <laughs> right, right. So I got into D&D specifically because of the narrative elements, which I'm pretty sure I've mentioned before. And the rule of cool is the perfect example of that and the perfect kind of, like, comparison. Because when you think about other forms of media, film, television shows, books, um, there's also rule of cools there where, like, the author or the director kind of bends the, and breaks the rules of their own world just to get this kind of really cool scene out of it. Just like in D and D, it can go too far. Like you mentioned, uppercutting the moon. I think that's the per- I think that's the perfect example of jumping the shark. I'm going to start calling it uppercutting the moon now. There you go. Because <laughs> I like that. So uh, you know, just like jumping the shark came from what, Happy Days when uh, Fonzie literally jumped over sharks on skis, and everyone was like, "Wait, what just happened?" Like where the, the director of that particular episode wanted to do something really cool, or the writer wrote in something that they thought this is going to be awesome, and it happened, and it was terrible. You run that same risk in D and D where it's I want to do this really really cool thing, and then you have to bounce that idea off of everyone else at the table in the DM, and hopefully somebody at the table goes, um, no, that's actually stupid. We're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, and with, you know, with D&D, yeah. you know, with any tabletop game and mm-hmm. film as a comparison, there's always a strict level of, like, what is our boundary for, like, ridiculous? Right. So, for example, let's use, uh, since we, I believe I brought Thanos earlier, uh, let's go ahead and bring up Infinity War. There's a scene in there that I'm not a physics expert, but I don't think that it works physically. Okay. And it's the fact that Thor took Rocket and Raccoon's spaceship on a wire and sp- spun it around his head <laughs> like hammer style and threw it. And then after he threw it, he's like, gun the engines, like do it now. And like the physics side of me says, if he threw him faster than the engines could propel the spaceship, right. then that wouldn't make it any faster. Right. <laughs> it's, you know what I mean? It's it's not like yeah. running on a train. Yeah, the rule of cool has its limitations, and that limitation is logic. But, you know, the the movie said, you know, screw that. This works for the movie because right. we need to make it a dynamic scene. Like, right. Thor can't just be like, oh, I solved it. Throw, huh? Right. The movie said, screw it. You know, this needs to work because we need this thing to happen. Right. Now you look at a movie that has a different rule set like John Wick right like John Wick's not picking up cars and throwing them at people (laughs) in you know avenging his dog right 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 you know I mean like there's their own rule set like you know he's having a cool like car versus six bad guy fight Mm -hmm. but it has its own strict little set of rules where it says like we shouldn't throw the rocket ship we shouldn't uppercut the moon there shouldn't be a moon show you can right no absolutely and and that's another thing uh, it happens a lot in uh, fantasy books where I feel like that genre in particular, it happens the most in because you're already dealing with fantastical elements, so it's easy to get a little carried away. 
Um, but once an author creates a world and rules, you can't go just breaking them willy nilly. Like you can bend them a little bit as long as you provide the, the proper justification. Um, but if you completely just dismantle the world that you've built, then there's no actual consequences and there's no, there's no weight to the actions that are being taken. Cause if you can just uppercut the moon, then I mean, you could just do whatever, whatever you want. Exactly. You know, it's the, uh, it's the final fantasy seven thing where it's like, you know, like, Oh, Aerith got stabbed and I can't use a Phoenix down for this. Right. It's like, that was a permanent character death. And they kind of set the rule of like, Hey, like this can happen. Right. Like, you know, you can lose a party member. Like, you don't, yeah, spoiler alert for a game that's 20 plus years old now. Yeah, like, no, <laughs> I, I, I think you were probably a little bit more... Um, I think I'm safe on that. Like, I don't I, have to be yeah. like Casablanca where it's like, oh, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you spoiled Infinity War, I think you're okay with spoiling Final Fantasy VII. Okay, perfect. Yeah. I'm just making sure. <laughs> but yeah, so there has to be that little limit set of like, this happens, this can be, you know... The boundary line. Otherwise, everything's just left up to chance. And, you know, sometimes that works. Like, Fate Accelerated pretty much works solely off that. Right. Where it's just, you know, hey, like, I'm going to roll a dice, and I'm doing this check, and, you know, it's in opposition to your check, and if it happens, I kind of win. But right. Fate is also a skeletal game system. Yeah. You know, you can do anything with the Fate Accelerated system. It could just be like, we're going to play Ninja Cyborg Robots and we're solving a murder mystery about Sherlock Holmes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot less rules and regulations in there. So uh, I guess one of the biggest factors of the rule of cool is it has to be contextually appropriate, you know, to the world that you've created, to the situation that's been created, to the players and what their skill sets are. That's one of the biggest things about this rule of cool, whether it's in movies or D&D, is that it has to be justified by its environment. With that being said, the question is, how do you limit it? And we've already kind of touched base on that, which is the DM and the players kind of have to have this, if, it, if not a nonverbal agreement, then an actual verbal agreement. Right. Saying, this is how crazy the world can get. Hmm. Yes, you can throw a guy into the fire. Yes, you can, you know, try and hopscotch your way up the side of a mountain. But no, you can't take that mountain and throw it at that guy. Right. <laughs> and I think this kind of plays into an even bigger rule, if you will, about D&D is that the best games, the best scene situations, uh, character interactions, environment uh, interactions, narrative in general happen when the players and the dungeon master know the most about their world. Like understand if you're a DM, understand your world, understand what its limitations are, understand what its strengths and opportunities are. Like if you, the more you know about your world that you've created, just like as an actor, the more you know about the role that you're portraying, the better performance, the better entertainment will come out of it. Exactly. And if it comes down to it, like if it's something where your players constantly want to do something like that and, you know, you want to allow some of them but not allow others, maybe you need to make like a new mechanic to the game, which, again, 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons does really well, where you can pretty much just add things to the game to make it your own. Yeah. So maybe you need to make like a inspiration type system where it's like everyone gets a token at the beginning of the game. And if you want to do some weird, crazy stunt you can use your stunt token. Right. And, you know, depending on the theme of your game, like if you're playing, like, I don't know, a retroverse game, it's like your glitch token or, you know, your uh, cheat token. It's it's pretty much something that says, like, I'm going to make an attempt of this, and here's the limitation that, you know, the table and the DM have set up. And uh, I think think it's time for a little mid-roll. Oh, okay, yeah. 
Welcome to the mid-roll. If you like my voice or Tony's voice, you can check us out on our other podcast, which is Almost Heroic. It's a 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons actual play podcast where uh, you could probably guess Patrick DMs, and I play uh, drunk most of the time. Yep, it's uh, the story of four idiots trying to save the world. We have Tony here as our bard murmur, Mm -hmm. nice tiefling college of whisper combination. We also have his teammate from Bites and Brews, Robert, who plays Samuel, who is a dark character, we'll say. (laughs) Just just slightly dark. We also have the lovely Whitney, who plays a barbarian genasi named Azerite, who is pretty much a chop-chop, axe-wielding, scary She-Hulk lady. And then everyone's favorite furball, Gralf, who's played by Alan, who is just our our little cherub. He's just the most (laughs) adorable guy. And he's he's basically a Disney princess. He really is. I think we nailed that in season one. You know, I think I actually saw him uh, feeding a bird once that just (laughs) arrived on his shoulder. It's beautiful. Like, Alan just has that about him. And that nice little, like, soft jingle playing in the background. Yeah, and then he sang a song and all the things chipped in and they helped him do laundry. (laughs) (laughs) So if you want to check out our other show, make sure that you go to any podcast provider, any one out there, and type in Almost Heroic. You can also find it at its podcast host site, which is bitesandbrews.podbean.com. That's B-Y-T-E-S-N-B-R-E-W-S. Let's get back to the show. Yay! And we're back. It almost sounds like we didn't go anywhere. Did we Did we go somewhere? I mean, we have the mid-roll. Oh, oh, right, right. I'm sorry, man. I've been drinking a little bit. I, don't, I thought we went to, like, Denny's, and it just wasn't even, like, I blacked out or you something. You just blacked out at Denny's? Yeah. Always a scary situation. Yeah. So this is the part of the show where we do a bit of a mailbag. I asked my Twitter audience, which is at the goddamn DM, to ask me some questions to use for this episode, and we've got two good ones. We actually got a shitload of good ones. I mean, I don't want to downplay it. <laughs> yeah, we got two good ones, and the yeah. rest were shit. <laughs> no, we got two excellent questions and you know that we wanted to use for this episode specifically, and we wanted to address them first. So our first question comes from Stephanie Reardon, who I actually recognize from our Bites and Brews Discord channel. Yeah, hey, Steph. She asked... How do you come up with storyline each week? Do you mostly make your own, or do you use other pre-made campaign stuff? Stephanie's a listener of our other podcast, Almost Heroic, and I get what she's asking, and the answer to that from my side is I make it all up. He does. I can, he's not lying. Like, I can vouch. Now, I will fully admit that I am a pop culture sponge. Like, if I watch a movie or if I see a TV show and I see something that I like, it ingrains in my head and I kind of go, ooh, how can I use that for a tabletop game? <laughs> like, the example that I gave her right away was uh, our characters were recently in a prison-type situation where they were having their powers nullified. Right. And since I talked about Divinity Original Sin 2, that mechanic, the colors that you guys were wearing were based off the callers that are in the Fort Joy prison, which is kind of the intro to the campaign. It's the, I want to say it's like your hour two through hour six of right. the campaign is you have your main powers nullified and you have to kind of go through still, you know, still picking up powers is just blocking off like your big screw off spells. Right, right. 
But I took that little piece and I added it to the game. But the storyline about being in the prison and how you guys broke out in the prison and BB's crazy adventure from Sincerely Sam being our guest on that episode, which was great. That went sideways real quick. Yeah, that (laughs) was all just stuff that we wrote and that the players went with and I as a DM improvised to keep the storyline going. Yeah, and I think that's the best way to do it, right? Because you don't want to have like a rigid plot and railroad your, your party. And I think that happens more often when you base your stories off of pre-made games rather than just creating something from scratch because then you, you're not necessarily tied to anything. You can go wherever you want because it's all just coming off the top of your head, right? It, it depends because I know that like for a beginning DM, mm-hmm. I highly recommend a pre-made campaign because it kind of shows you like, oh, this is how to think about things, how these go, and it's kind of like training where if you look through, like, we'll say uh, the Horde of the Dragon Queen, which is a D&D 5e adventure from right. Wizards of the Coast, you get to look at that and kind of go, oh, this is how they run it, and these are all the notes, and they kind of keep it loose enough where you can kind of do things your way, but, you know, it gives you enough structure where if you need to rely on something, they have it, and you can determine, like, is this the game that I want to run? Like, is this the kind of, like oh, we're in a town and there's all these little things going in town and there's little side quests and there's main quests and you can choose a side quest, you can choose a main quest. Is that what I want to do as a DM? Or do I want to do something different? So it's nice to have as a tool. The second thing that the pre-made adventures are really great for is picking out pieces, which is kind of her second question, is do you use some of the other pre-made game stuff? I've run games before where I've seen like a castle siege in an adventure, and I think it might actually have been Horde of the Dragon Queen, where they had a uh, a siege on a town, and they had different events happening where you can come and like help survivors out, and then like they had a predetermined like role system where it's like, oh, like at this point, like you get challenged by like one of the main generals, and like in a dragon attacks at this point, and I've used that to start a campaign before. And then the rest of the campaign was homemade. So you can select scenes out of what you like and kind of put them together with your own style. So I guess just starting out, like stick with pre-made so you can learn your own style and see what you like and what you don't like. Yeah, I mean, it's all it's all on your preference. Like mm. as a DM, I kind of recommend that you start with a pre-made campaign mm. and then go to write your own just so that way you can kind of see like how how the rest of the people do it and how you want to do it. That being said, as a DM, I started writing my own stuff. Yeah, and that's how I did it too. But honestly, I had you to help me. So I feel like if you weren't a resource, I probably would have started with a pre-made. Yeah, and I will say like the first things that I wrote were garbage. <laughs> like my first campaign was like absolute garbage. And then I had one player, I I fell into that weird trap of a player, of me being like, yeah, and then they all get captured because they get put to sleep by a spell. Right. And one player's like, uh, my character can't fall asleep because of spells. And it's like, ah, crap. <laughs> <laughs> you were trying to do like the Dark Brotherhood thing where you wake up and you got like... Your, That's exactly yeah. what I was. I was playing a lot of uh, Skyrim at the time. No, I was playing uh, Oblivion at the oh, time. Oblivion, nice. Yeah, and I was trying to do the like, you guys get you know captured and it's like, hey, we're the resistance kind right, of thing. Right, right. I was trying to do that and one character wouldn't fall asleep, so I ended up kind of pummeling the player instead. Like, I ran camp. <laughs> you will I, go yeah. to sleep. Not not physically, <laughs> but, you know, I ran the, like, all right, well, combat starts and everyone's asleep except for you. There's nine guys in the room. <laughs> right. And it's like, do you want to play this out or do you want to just kind of fall over? Right. <laughs> do you want to just give up or? <laughs> yeah, but that, that was me as a DM going like, ah, man, I didn't think of that. Right. And, you know, 
me just writing my own story and not being an experienced DM, that's a trap that I fell into, which is kind of how the pre-mates help because they're like, oh, like if you have someone who does this or someone that can do this, then they can glean this information or they can do this thing. Right. They've already thought of those situations for you. Exactly. Or they give you at least tools that you can work around where it's like, yeah. oh, like this is written in a weird language. It's like, but if they speak abyssal, this right. is what they can figure out. Or like, this is like a little extra bonus for them. Yeah. So ultimately uh, your advice Start with pre-mades to figure out what your flavor is and then just kind of work from there. Add a little bit more of your own personality, individual individualism into it as you progress as a DM. Exactly. No, I think that would be probably the, the safest way to go. Like, you know, you can do whatever you want, but if you wanted to, if you're just starting off, you have no resources, you know, like your friends are looking to you to be like, teach us D&D and you don't know D&D. Right. That's the way to go. Yeah. Our next question uh, comes from JP Lanthrum on Twitter. They asked, is there a best class for someone who's never played before? I, so this is, I feel like this is more my question because like I'm more of the player than the DM. I've DM'd a total of one game before, but I've played a lot of games. I don't know if there's one specific class that's the best class, but I can tell you that there are certain classes that are probably easier to play. Uh, anything that doesn't have like magic is way, way easier to play than your magic based classes, you know? So like if you pick a wizard, you're going to have to remember a lot of stuff. But if you pick a like a barbarian or a fighter, like you literally, you, you got to remember like one or two things. I mean, I know the fighters, like the battle masters have the maneuvers, but that's like maximum, maybe five maneuvers that you have to remember. Whereas a spell book can quickly turn into 20, 30 spells that are all, you they have their own utility and they're all, they're, they all have their unique roles in specific environments and situations and you have to be able to put all those things together so if you don't want to play like D&D the puzzle game then my recommendation start with a fighter or even easier I think a barbarian would probably be the easiest because really all you have to do is remember rage before every combat and you're good <laughs> those were the exact mm -hmm. classes I was going to bring up mm -hmm. uh, especially for someone just starting off uh, a fighter specifically if you're playing fifth edition uh a fighter with the subclass of champion oh yeah because champions uh pretty much get the expanded crit range role mm -hmm. and they just get a, a bucket of attacks right every round and so it works for a player that wants to be melee based and it works for a player that wants to be range based because you can play a fighter like a ranger you, Right. You know, you pretty much play uh, like a Legolas type archer where it's just like, I'm just going to fire like nine arrows. Screw you. Right. <laughs> attack one, attack two, attack three, extra attack. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people, when they think fighter, they immediately assume melee. But like the idea of a fighter is that they are good at fighting. Exactly. Like all forms of fighting. Yep. Long range, short range. As long as it doesn't have any magic involved, they're the person you want on your team. <laughs> yeah, and they, you know, they do have a magic option. They have the Eldritch Knight. Oh yeah, but uh, I mean, but that even then, that's like a uh, that's kind of like a baby step into magic itself because right. they get a very limited pool of spells, so they yeah. don't have a lot to choose from, and they get limited spell slots, which yeah. is kind of like your spell ammunition. I think that's more. I think that's more intermediate, right? I mean, if we're thinking beginner fighter barbarian, yeah. and then there's subclasses that'll kind of easily transition, like you said, like you could even do that for a rogue. I mean, rogue has what their arcane trickster, or whatever, yep. where, where they get like limited spell slots and like a little bit of flexibility there. And then I feel like bard starts kind of leaning in that direction, where they're a lot. They're kind of a mix between a rogue and a wizard, 
where you have your utility and you have your magic, but you're still not full-blown, like, wizard. Exactly. And Bard is... Bard's a tricky one, because I know that when the question was asked on Twitter, Mm -hmm. uh, we had one person uh, chime in and immediately say, like, oh, like, you can just do Bard, because Bards are versatile. And that's a good point, is, like, Bards are really versatile, in the sense of, like, they can be a good spellcaster, they can assist in combat, they can do a lot of things that other classes can't, like the Bardic Inspiration. And that makes them a great tool, but maybe not a great learning tool. Because right. a lot of people, when you get into, how can I put it, it really depends on, like, what you're looking for when you're first starting D&D. Yeah. If you want to take a backseat, but everyone else kind of take the spotlight in terms of, like, combat and you know, being able to do the bigger things, then a bard is a perfect choice because you pretty much are the support class. So you can sit there and just bardic inspiration. It's like, I'm not really into the combat. I'm just into the role play. So it's like bardic inspiration, little spell here, little spell there. Perfect, cool, we're done. You know, I'm not going to get too involved in the combat side of it. Yeah, but I also I also feel like like that's a great positive of it, right? But I feel like telling someone who's never played D&D before to play a bard is like, hey, I want to get into fantasy books. And you just drop the whole wheel of time, like, yeah. like 15, 16 books in front of them. And be like, here you go. Like, it's just a lot of information to take in at once. Exactly. And that that was going to be the second point of it, where it's like, the downside is if you're not that type of person, Mm -hmm. it's an absolutely awful choice, because then you feel underpowered, because you don't know how to be like, oh, like, I can be creative, and I can use the rule of cool on certain things as a bard, you know, and I'm going to lie my way into this situation and bluff my way into that situation. Without that little, like, player instinct, right? bards are an awful choice. Yeah, I don't think I could play Murmur as well as I have if I haven't played D&D before. Like, if this was my first D&D experience and I went straight into playing the Tiefling Bard, I mean, I don't play him well either way, but, I mean, I play him a little bit better than I would have if this was my first go at it. Exactly. And, you know, it also depends on the capacity of you as a player. So, like, if you are a technical person and you can just, like, read the you know 300 plus pages of every book and just be like oh perfect i got this i totally understand the game right do whatever you want like <laughs> yeah you know, if, if, you you're a, need... if you're a savant at this thing do yeah. whatever you want then but... this question isn't for you <laughs> exactly you know this clearly is not your question right uh i think that that pretty much wrapped it up i yeah any any final thoughts words comments profanities um i mean i got a couple profanities i don't know are we trying to keep this show pg-13 or ish okay yeah then probably not yeah <laughs> if you want to hear more from me you can always check me out on twitter at the goddamn dm and you can ask questions to the show using the hashtag ask and maybe you will use your question for a new episode yeah. And also, don't forget to check out Almost Heroic, which is our fifth edition actual play podcast, anywhere podcasts are available. 